Guys, mental health is something that Dan and I are extremely passionate about, which is why it excites us to say that we are partnering with BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode and our podcast. BetterHelp is the world's leading therapy service and it's 100% online. With BetterHelp, you can tap into a network of over 30,000 licensed and experienced therapists who can help you with a wide range of issues. To get started, you just answer a few questions about your needs and preferences in therapy. That way, BetterHelp can match you with the right therapist from their network. Then, you can talk to your therapist however you feel comfortable, whether it's via text, chat, phone, or video call. You can message your therapist at any time and schedule live sessions when it's convenient for you. If your therapist isn't the right fit for any reason, you can switch to a new therapist at no additional charge. With BetterHelp, you get the same professional and quality you expect from in-office therapy, but with a therapist who is custom-picked for you, more scheduling flexibility, and at a more affordable price. Get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com slash BacksideGroundBalls. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash BacksideGroundBalls. by Riverside. Welcome back to episode 112 of the Backside Ground Balls podcast. We're super excited to be back here on the pod. My name is Trevor Powers, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Dan Galati. We have a super special episode today. We have Carter Hicks joining us. He is the Director of Player and Program Development at University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. Started out as a student manager, living the dream from 2015 to 2018 with the Tar Heels. They spent four years with USA Baseball as the director of operations, including as the operations coordinator for the silver medalist Team USA at the 2020 Olympics. Carter, thank you for joining us. Hey, guys. I really appreciate you guys having me on. I'm looking forward to talking some baseball tonight. Yeah, and I'll tell you this. You're the first person. I thought of this as the intro music was going. You're the first person that I haven't had to ask how to pronounce their name <laughs> when I introed the podcast. So that's it. We'll, we'll send you a reward or, or an go. award or something like that for there that. There we go. Start, start on top. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Uh, so just for our listeners who, who might not know, and, and obviously there's a lot of moving parts that go into running a college baseball team, just describe your position with the Tar Heels for us. Yeah, so my role, as you mentioned, director, player, and program development, um, really we look at it kind of as a Swiss Army knife type position. Obviously, there's been a lot of changes in college baseball and college athletics. And so um, my responsibilities, a lot of it is with roster management, transfer portal, recruiting, obviously, you know, name, image, and likeness comes into it now. Um, I do a lot with our analytics team at Carolina, um, event scouting responsibilities, kind of a lot of personnel driven, but also um, really helping our players in every aspect of their, you know, development, whether it's on the field, off the field, um, academics playing into this type of role too. So it's kind of an all-encompassing role, which I love. You know, one of the biggest things for me always is, you know, the interactions, the day-to-day interactions with players. And so being able to see them progress over time um, as people, as baseball players and, and all that stuff is awesome. And that's, that's what my job number one is always about. Yeah. I, I, your, your role really excites me because in my opinion, um, I think you're probably one of the most important people in college programs, especially, you know, power five programs like the one you're at. And you're someone who, you know, I'm no offense here, but not everybody knows your name, right? You're not going to jump out and be like, oh, well, Carter Hicks does so much. But you are a guy who basically keeps the wheels turning inside of a program. That job is incredibly important. How do you manage that? And how do you – because I, I would imagine that you almost have to stay one step ahead on everything, right? Like you yeah. have to know to keep everything, you know, oiled up and, and, and rolling the way it's supposed to and the way you guys – you know, that vision that you guys have. How do you manage that? How do you stay one step ahead? Because it's got to be taxing, yeah, you know, the biggest thing for us, and Coach Forbes, our head coach, preaches about it, is 
is he wants us always to, you know, you got to come up with your game plan. And obviously you're going to be full on about what that game plan is. But also, you know, when crap hits the fan in the third inning and you got to go pull that starter and we got to figure out how we're going to cover the next six, you know, six innings. It, same thing happens in our role, right? You know, you have a game plan, you, you plan to follow it through and you've prepared for it. But also, like, you got to be ready for when for when that doesn't happen. Right. Um, and so a lot of that, you know, for us, you know, whether it's a we're going after this really big you know, guy out of the transfer portal, and we think he's going to be a huge piece for us. But what happens if he doesn't come? You know, what's the next call going to be? What's the next thing going to be? And so a lot of that just, you know, working really close with our assistant coaches um, in terms of making sure that their day to day is covered, talking with our players, I think ultimately goes back to just communication, um, you know, making sure that our players are communicating to us what they need. Uh, assistant coaches, us staff have a great relationship in terms of like, you know, making sure that we're always daily on the same on the same page. Because then ultimately, we always say too, you know, when we go down the elevator and go to practice, like all of us are on the exact same page. And a lot of that, in my opinion, kind of goes back to that communication piece. Yeah, communication is such a big piece. And, and at the level that you're at, there's so many moving parts, right? And there's so many different, I mean, you pull up your guys uh, coaching staff and the amount of support staff alone was like just unfathomable to me to think that you guys have that much help really. What's it like coordinating and, and helping, you know, I'm sure the student managers, the amount of them. And that's kind of been one thing that at least from my perspective, from the outside looking in the, the student analytics department has been a huge piece of what uh, you guys have done. Yeah, you know, it, we're very fortunate. I mean, we have we have a great staff. A lot of our staff members, um, whether it's Coach Greg Gatz or, or Terry Joe, our athletic trainer, have been with our program, you know, for 25, 20, 25 plus years. And so continuity is huge. You know, Coach Forbes has been at Carolina for, for 20 plus years, head coach now in his fourth season. Um, and all of us assistants have, have graduated from, from UNC. So I think that continuity, you know, our, our love for the place is obviously important. But, you know, when you have such a large staff, obviously you're fortunate because you have a lot of hands and there's a lot of things that can, that can, you know, that you need to get done on a daily basis. But then ultimately making sure that everyone's pulling the same direction, um, everyone's on the same page. Obviously, that's that's going to be first and foremost because, you know, our players are smart. They, they can tell if, you know, they can pretty easily pick up if someone's, not all there today or, you know, think that, you know, we think one way, they think the other way in terms of another staff member or something. So being sure that we're always pulling the same direction um, is, is paramount. And again, like I said, not the hard point, but that goes back to the communication piece and, and over communicating um, that kind of falls under my, my responsibility a little bit and being sure that, Hey, you might already have the schedule for today, coach Gats, but Hey, we're, we're, our pitchers are lifting at three thirty, and our position guys are going at five, you know, are you want at our place or you want to come up to you, that type of stuff is, and making sure that all of our, you know, every, everyone's on the same exact page at all times. Yeah, you mentioned it with the communication and, and over-communication aspect in, in college athletics today. I mean, Dan and I are both huge college football fans. You're at a, a Power 5 program. I'm sure you attend as many college football games as you can. I'm listening to James Franklin's press conference today, and he's talking about how it changed the environment of college football, of having to have communication, even with parents at their level of like communicating why your son might not be in the position that he wants to be. But down the road, we see him developing into this. It's an ever changing landscape of college athletics with the transfer portal and everything that has come into it. And you mentioned kind of the the way you're in control of that and how you help that how has the transfer portal specifically, how has that changed the way you operate? And maybe even a little deeper on that, what are the things you try to evaluate when you're thinking about bringing in a potential impact player through the transfer portal that you might not be able to go see in the spring before they enroll? Yeah, you know, the, the portals is, it's interesting. Um, you know, we, and we were the beneficiary of it this year. We have, I think, six or seven guys out of the portal um, who a lot of them are have a chance to really help us from day one. Um, you know, first and foremost for us is always, you know, we, our culture and our standards of our program are never going to, they're never going to waver. And so if we're going to bring someone into our program, um, you know, they have to, they have to meet those standards and exceed those standards and they have to be willing to um, basically put the team over themselves in all aspects. And that's always our number one. Um, you know, we, in terms of in terms of the portal, right? Like we're open about it. To be honest with you, you know, we we're open with our players. You mentioned playing time. You mentioned all this stuff. You know, because ultimately, um, we we want to be transparent, and we we think ultimately it's going to help you in your development. But also, if it's if you're not going to play, 
then we, we want to be honest with you. We'll give you every chance. We'll still work with you every day. We're still, our goal is still to make you the best player you can be, but it's also our responsibility to be, you know, honest. And, uh, you know, we talk about tough love as a, as a something in our program. Uh, but ultimately we want to be honest with you. And if you got to make a decision to, to do, you know, to go somewhere else because it's best for your career, we're, we're going to support you because ultimately at the end of the day, we want what's best for you, the individual, the person. And, you know, after that, you know, you make the decisions how you need. I think that's just, that's so hard to sometimes, I would imagine that that's hard to stick to sometimes when you get into the competitive nature of like, we're trying to build a winner. But at the same time, I think, you know, when you talk to anyone who's a part of a successful program, like, like you guys, it's, you know, winning is what matters, but we have to do the little things that add up to get those wins, like caring about your players, like being able to adjust to, you know, transfer portal and NIL and how the college landscape just continues to rapidly evolve. I mean, it's, it feels like it's happened in the blink of an eye ever since the NIL was passed and portal comes. And then, you know, now you have realignment. What are, if you can, what are some of those conversations like with the the staff when you guys sit down and you kind of make that game plan for adjusting to some of those new things can you kind of take us behind the curtain a little bit on like okay guys this is how you know I know it might be frustrating I know it's going to be tough but we have to just continue to you know do what we think is best for the program yeah you know I think that's where us as a staff have have really we've really grown but also it helps that we're all Carolina guys Um, we've all like, obviously we, we all have a, you know, it's not just our job. Like we, we are alumni of this place. So it means something more to us. So when we go to make a decision about a program or about a player, you know, the first question we want to ask is, do we want to be associated with this in terms of being, you know, former lettering? And so I think that's important. It's a, it's a different kind of uh, lens to view it out of, but ultimately like for us at the end of the day, winning is always number one. And ultimately, you know, we, we always talk about how, you know, winners get the rewards and the awards. So whether that is in terms of the draft, whether that's in terms of, you know, all Americans and all that stuff, if we, if we don't win on the field, then no one cares. It doesn't matter. You can bring NIL into that. Now, if we don't win baseball games, if we don't, you know, make, make the postseason, make the you know world series, whatever, like no one cares. And you're not, you're not going to benefit in the end. So ultimately, like if you put winning number one, everything else that you want as a player, as an individual is, is, is going to follow. If you don't win, then it, it doesn't matter. You know, you mentioned the, the NIL and how, you know, winning still is one of the biggest things as far as, you know, when recruiting goes and, and so many other things and every kid's different when it comes to recruiting. But if you can, what has NIL kind of changed the most for you guys as far as recruiting goes? Because, you know, I, I think that, Everybody looks at when you talk to a regular person, everybody looks at college athletics through the scope of football. And, you know, I just actually had a conversation. I don't even remember who it was with someone who doesn't understand that much. And they I think they asked me about some sort of college baseball scholarship. And I had to explain to them the 11.7 thing. Yep. It was like, it's not what you know, this isn't football where you can, you know, you don't get just 85 of these full things. So how from a baseball standpoint has kind of NIL changed the landscape of what you guys do? Yeah, well, you, you you hit the nail on the head a little bit right there. I think that's the biggest thing we've seen is just, you know, informing, you know, our supporters and our donors and everything. Everyone knows, at least, you know, baseball fans know 11.7, right? You, you know that number, but what does that really mean, right? So if I'm a, you know, if, if I'm – everyone on our team in some capacity is paying something to attend the University of North Carolina. It's just that that's, we're not any different than anyone else in terms of what we're able to do with our scholarships. Like that's, that's how it works out. Right. So what NIL allows you to do really is to bridge the gap between the 11.7 and a full 35. Um, You know, I think NIL these days gets a bad rap in terms of, you know, what you hear in the media and you hear about these, you know, tampering and you hear about these large five, six, whatever millions. Right. But ultimately like think about your college baseball player who, he attends University of North Carolina out of state. It's $50,000 to attend. And he's on, you know, he's on a 40% scholarship. Well, okay, he's still paying over $25,000 to attend school. Well, how can we bridge the gap between his 40% athletic scholarship and the $50,000 that he has to pay because he's from, you know, Florida? That's where I think NIL, at least in the baseball world, is extremely beneficial um, in terms of how we can ultimately you know, let a player attend our university, you know, hopefully they're drafted after the third year. If they say their fourth year and they graduate, you know, regardless, we want them to be able to leave our program, leave our university with a degree in hand 
and with as, as little to no debt, you know, as possible. And so that's where I think NIL in terms of baseball can really be beneficial. Um, and I think it's, it's to, you know, people don't always think about it that way, right? Because you all, what you see, you don't see that in the media, right? In the media, you see all these big numbers thrown around and we all know, generally speaking, those numbers are, you know, half to a third, what you actually see, but like, there's a good side to NIL too. And, and I think that's one part of it, the community service aspects that can be tied into NIL when it's done correctly um, are obviously largely beneficial too. I'll tell you this, if I was sitting in your office right now and I was a recruit, I'd probably be committing to you with that NIL pitch right there if I was worried about it. But again, we, we, because uh, so much of the media is tied to the negatives of NIL, it, there I'm sure there are hard conversations that come with it of somebody getting promised, potentially even false promises, potentially guys on your roster, all of the things like that that can come into play that has now changed the complete dynamic of college athletics and and college baseball. It's it's probably a five percenter problem, like maybe that where they actually have the ability to offer life-changing money and you can never fault an individual for for taking life-changing money or, or something like that they're now legally allowed to do but from talking to you from kind of hearing you speak it sounds like there's a like i mean every program has their kind of guy right there's a carolina guy i would guess you guys probably talk about there's there's some traits that you have how do you balance the two of understanding that there are going to be opportunities that might you know create what could be deemed as greed, but also realizing that is the juice worth the squeeze? Does this player, and this is all recruiting in general, high school transfer portal um, before NIL, like, is this player going to fit our culture? Is this player going to fit what we're trying to accomplish as a program? How do you balance the two, especially now that it's accelerated with these things like the transfer portal and NIL? Yeah. I mean, that, that's a tough question. Um, I think ultimately you got to figure out what's important to you as a program. <clears throat> pardon me. And you got to figure out what's important and you got to stick to it because ultimately like the NIL aspect of it, like it, if you're good enough and you're a good enough player, like it's going to be there. But ultimately, right. We, at least where we're currently at in college baseball, like that life changing money is going to be after your junior year when the New York Yankees draft you the first round. Right. You know, NIL is, is something that, you know, I think even you can use the aspects of, you know, we'll have some guys that maybe they have a, a deal with a local restaurant, Chapel Hill. And I always tell them, you know, if you can go get, you know, three meals a week for free from that, your favorite restaurant on Franklin Street, like that's helping you. That's not necessarily life changing, but in the moment, like it's impactful in the moment, you know? So I think things like that, you can get creative, but in terms of how you recruit it, like if NIL is your number one priority, then we're not, we're not a fit for you because we don't have that. Like we don't to that, to that extent, but ultimately like you got to figure out what's important to you as a program. You got to figure out what kind of traits take the NIL part of it out, you figure out what's important to you. And then if, if, the, if it matches and you're on the same page with the kid, then at that point, you know, maybe there's a conversation once they get on your campus and you realize that who you thought you recruited is actually who you got, you know, the type of player that you thought you were getting, um, he actually matches up. Then at, at that point when the performance and, you know, in terms of not just what they do on the field, but what who they are as a person, right? If that matches up with what you expect your program to be, then obviously there's going to be some avenues that open up for them um, in that regard. Yeah, I mean, it's it, it's funny. Uh, if you have any players that are looking for NIL deals, the backside ground balls, we'll, we'll work with you. We'll get, <laughs> we could use some marketing from some guys with some Instagram followers and things like that. We'd be more than willing to, to work with them. And if, if they're all, all they're asking for is three feel, free meals a week, I, I could probably swing that. It might be at the dining hall, but I can swing it. That's funny. That's funny. <laughs> no, of course. But um, – you know, obviously, it's it's funny we talk about the transfer portal, and one of the reasons why my head goes there is good friend of, of the podcast and good friend of, of mine and, and even Dan's is, is Alex Madera is a, a player that is going to be with you guys and has been with you guys for the fall and, and will be the spring of next year. So that's why I just it piques my interest to understand because he from the talking to you for the short time that we've been on here and, and before when we were talking, 
it's a seamless fit. Just knowing him, knowing the person he is, knowing the, the caliber, the way he plays the baseball game, all the things like that. And that kind of shows that, at least from my perspective, you guys are doing things the right way, right? It's it's taking guys that are going to fit your culture, fit your program. And at least to me, that's sustainable. You know, it's not going to reach the high highs and, and the low lows. But um, And I know there's not necessarily a question for that, but uh, any if there's any response there. Yeah, no, you know, to that point, like we talk as a staff all the time, right? Like baseball is such a different sport and that, you know, we have individual skill work that starts in the first day of class. And then hopefully we're playing through the end of July or end of June, pardon me. So, you know, we're around these guys so much that if we don't have 35 guys in our locker room that like it brings a smile on our face every day, like, you know, to go down our elevator from our offices down to the first floor to the locker room to the field. And if we don't, if, if we're not excited to see you every single day, then like, I mean, what are we doing? Cause you know, so that, that's important. You, you want kids you want, that you want to be around. You want kids that you trust. You want kids that are going to work hard. You don't have to worry about what they do when they leave, but ultimately like finding those kids that you want to be around every single day because of the nature of our sport that, you know, that's so important. And, you know, Madera is a great, a great example of that. Yeah. I'm going to, uh, I hate to do this, but I just want to swing the conversation back to your time at USA baseball really quickly. Um, what kind of, what were some of the experiences or what was that experience? Did that experience do for you that kind of shaped you or changed you from, you know, your time at, at Chapel Hill before and now your time at Chapel Hill now, what was that experience like? And, and kind of what were some yeah, of those takeaways? Those four years were, were incredible. I mean, I, I, you know, we were talking before the podcast started, I think, during my time at USA, I went to Japan like five or six times, went to Taiwan. I think I went to 13 different countries, been to Cuba, was in Tokyo for the Olympics, was a part of multiple professional teams, um, was, you know, collegiate national teams, was a part of the 2019-18 U team that went to Korea. So, and, you know, with a guy, I bring that up because Pete Crow Armstrong was our starting center fielder on that team, made his debut, um, I guess, today. So, yeah. um, you know, when you – when you're around such high level of player, you see how they operate, you see how they do what they do. And then not to mention just the coaches, um, anything from a Mike Sosha, who was the manager for our Olympic team to, you know, the first head coach of, of the college team I was with was Paul Maneri. And so you see names like that, you know, Cliff Godwin was, was on two staffs. I was a part of um, who, who I would call a good friend of mine now. Like when you're around the elite of the elite, whether it's a player or a coach or, like you learn a lot just by watching. Um, and so I think, you know, those four years for me were, were incredible, you know, very thankful to, to USA baseball for those opportunities. And, and I grew a ton because you, you just see so many different things. You figure out how things, you know, how, you know, what does work, what doesn't work, how different people operate. And I think a lot of that kind of, you know, I try to use those, you know, those uh, experiences and, and, you know, refer back to stuff like that, you know, in my current job, because, um, ultimately, you know, it's still you're still trying to win. That's obviously number one. And you're still around the elite of the elite and, and seeing how they do things. You know, it, it's for me, it's always really interesting to, to learn how how they go about their daily business and how that affects their performance. Do you have a silver the silver medal in your office or did you not get a silver medal? I, I do. Have, so funny story, I guess. So we um, I don't want to get, get myself in trouble with this. So <laughs> I, it's, it's a big Olympic thing that the, uh, only the athletes get medals. It, oh. It's, it's a longstanding history. Um, only athletes get medals. Right. So when we got back, you know, Mike Sosha was, well, what the heck? Like, you know, I, I want a medal. So we, uh, we might've recreated the medal in some, some way, shape or form to have, have, you know, have our own type of, uh, silver medal laying around, but, um, no, like the Olympics are incredible. You know, something I always took for granted is you didn't, you never realized how big that thing is. It, I mean, the event's massive and we were there in COVID. There were no fans. Like it was, it was incredible, but the, I mean, it was, it was an incredible experience, but to your question yet, yeah, there is a replica some laying around here somewhere. Just another fun one real quick. Were you guys allowed, I know it was during COVID. Were you allowed to go see other events? So we were allowed to go see other events that were within your own venue. Okay. So we can only go see baseball. Okay. We can go see other baseball games. But um, what was really cool about the Olympics, and so we, you know, we had all of our players, um, medical staff all stayed in the Olympic Village. And then us coaches and, and, you know, front office staff stayed in an off-site hotel. 
But one of the things that I tell everyone this, so also in our hotel was the swimming and diving team, the coaches, and then also there was some, I think, soccer coaches in there. So, you know, and then we just by, you know, nature of, you know, passing by in the hallways and everything became really close to the swim and dive coach um, who in his staff, his name was Jack Bowerly, a longtime head coach at the University of Georgia, like legendary collegiate swimming coach, like phenomenal guy, huge baseball fan, like huge fan. So some of our best stories from the Olympics were sitting, you know, in the hotel lobby, eating a Papa John's pizza with Jack and his staff and our staff and just like talking about the day. And then on top of that, being able to watch, you know, watch, you know, when the, when the women were going and Jack was back at the hotel or something, watching a sport with an athlete or a coach from that sport, I think was incredibly eye-opening. Um, and I don't know, th- those were some really memorable experiences that, that I think, um, they're, they're just really awesome. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, that's great. That's like what you, those are the things you remember, right? Um, like the, not the wins and losses and, and that's everywhere, but with your experience at USA baseball as well, you had, you know, Dan and I are very interested in the technology side of things and obviously baseball specifically with, with TrackMan, And, and obviously it seems like at least from, from what your bio says on, on UNC's page, that it was kind of like almost like a liaison as for a lot of different parts. So talk about a, what you learned with TrackMan individually, but what even outside of with maybe the people that you had to communicate that um, you might not have even learned before, or you might not have known before you had started with that. Yeah. So kind of in my role, you know, I mentioned the college and pro stuff. And I also kind of the third part of that was a lot with our uh, USA baseball, I say our, the USA baseball, major league baseball relationship. So a lot of that was, you know, the MLB draft combine. I was, you know, integral part of the 21 and the 22 combine and then also tracking because ultimately the data sharing between USA baseball and then the 30 clubs, how it facilitates through the commissioner's office um, is an impactful program for the clubs when they go to make draft decisions. And so, you know, one thing during my time that was kind of the most important, and I, I say this because I think everyone kind of takes it for granted, but you know, when you're really in it and you're making, you know, million dollar decisions, you know, clubs are doing, it, it kind of drives from the point of just kind of the, the data quality and ensuring the consistency across the board. I think that kind of sounds like a given, but when, you know, when we have an event at the USA complex and there was, you know, 75 games being played over three days, you know, anything that slips through the cracks, you don't know how that's going to pot, you know, positively or negatively affect a player or a club. So I think ultimately at the end of the day, like that type of thing, you know, you, you got to have a, you know, high attention to detail and all that stuff to work in sports. We all understand that, but I think it takes it to the nth, uh, nth degree, right? Because everything you lay out has to be hundred percent correct. And so I think that was on the, on the track man side, great relationship with them. We still obviously have track man at UNC now and, um, that was just something to me that, you know, you kind of like to take for granted, but until you're kind of in it, you don't necessarily kind of see it come to fruition until, until something, you know, until crap hits the fan for lack of a better term. You know, I asked this of, I feel like every single college baseball coach we have on here, but, um, cause it's just fascinating for me to try and understand this, but I like to hear other people's opinions. There's still, you know, there's such a debate in baseball between, old school and new school and i'll put that in parentheses for our audio uh only listener quotation marks for our audio only listeners but you know like how what what do you say to those people you've worked with data now for years and you can obviously see how you guys implement it and how it helps your player development program what do you say to the people who you know just want to shout nerd and that because i think there's obviously two sides to you know there's there's way too many people who are on the side of it's bad and there's way too many people who look at at just the data and let that obscure their view and there has to be a middle ground somewhere what do you say to some of those people on either end of that spectrum really yeah so i kind of have two points to that a little bit so i think first and foremost like i kind of see myself I, you know kind of having some old school scouting thoughts but also understanding the new school and how those two combine right so i think ultimately first and foremost like i think you let the data in my opinion you let the data quantify what you see with your eyes right so, you know, a guy who has a high riding fastball and he should pitch at the top of the zone because he throws 95 and has a 2,500 spin rate, like, yeah, I, the numbers tell me that. But also I can watch, you know, a great example for us is Jake Knapp, who, you know, who's who was a weekend starter for us last year. 
Like I can watch him pitch and I can see the swings that guys take. And I can see that when he goes up in the zone, like guys can't hit it and, and guys swing under it consistently. And you wonder why. Okay. Well, then you look at the numbers. Okay. Well, that's why everyone's swinging under it. And that's why he's getting out on top of the zone. He's making mistakes that are out over the plate in the you know, upper part of the zone, but he's getting swings and misses. Okay. Well, so I think that's how, that's kind of the first thing is how you can quantify or qualify with, with numbers, what you see with your eyes. Um, and then I think the second part of it is really, and, and now that, you know, when, when I'm with USA, you, you have a team, but you're together for at most three weeks, right? So there's only so much you can do. Now in my role at USA, or at UNC, pardon me, you know, we're, I'm around the same guys every single day for 365 days. So you, when, you're, when you go to tell a player what you see or what they need to do differently or how they can improve, like this now gives you something to go, hey, look, the numbers don't lie here's what you should be doing. Here's why you should be doing it. And look, here, here's your results. And so I think stuff like that is so, so impactful. I mean, kids these days, they're, 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 they know their, their VLOs. Everyone, everyone knows that, but nowadays they're, they're starting to learn what their spin rates are and what their horizontal vertical does. And as pitchers and what exit VLO means as a hitter and how to effectively use exit VLO and launching and all that stuff. But now it just gives you hard data to show why you think something. And I think when you're talking with a player, like it's easy for, for one coach to have one opinion, but then if you have numbers to back it up, like it's harder to dispute, okay, well, he's not just telling me I need to pitch to the top of the center. He's not just telling me that, you know, I, I need to hit the ball in the air more because I hit the ball really, really hard, but I hit it all into the ground. Right. And that's not gonna do anyone any good. So I think, I think that's kind of where you kind of mesh the old and the new, and then also how you, how you present it to whether it's a player, you know, just kind of ultimately how you use it in the program. Yeah, and I, I would imagine that there's still, you know, some guys who, like you said, they're really starting to understand the data so they can, you know, accept it for what it is and continue to get better with it. And there are still some guys who maybe don't understand it, so you have to kind of pick and choose how you go about, you know, giving them that information. How do you guys as kind of a staff digest that information that you're getting? Because I would imagine you guys understand almost all of it top to bottom. Um, which you guys need to know, but then how do you take that information in and then kind of, you know, strategize to, to give it to guys so that they can absorb it and get better with it? Yeah. Well, first and foremost, like when we tell this, when we're recruiting a kid, you know, we'll tell them this and, and it stays true all the way through is, you know, we have all the resources you could possibly need technology wise. Right. And, and that's for us, that's a given, but ultimately like we want to leave it on the player to determine we're never going to force it, right? So if they want video, we have it. If you don't want it, great. If you want to use it when you're going great and you, you want to see all your good swings, perfect. If you if you only want to see it when you're going bad, we have that too. So ultimately, like we, we want to have all the numbers so that ultimately if there's ever a question of why, basically you can answer the question why, right? Ultimately at the end of the day. So that's kind of where it comes in with us. But um, in terms of like how we relate that back to the player, like, like you know, we're never going to force it on them. If they're interested and they want to learn more and they want to dive in, like we're willing to have those conversations. We want to have those conversations. But ultimately, like I think you got to be careful with the guys who know nothing but think it's cool and I got to learn what this means. As a pro, as you know, in terms of just handing them over the data and say, "Hey, here you go," like you know, because that's that's in, in my opinion, that's scary. Like there's no telling what they're going to do with it. There's no telling, you know, what they're going to what flaw they're going to think they have or, you know, that type of thing. Um, because, you know, we, we tell guys all the time, if you're looking for something, odds are, you know, in, in this type of stuff, right, you probably find it. Um, you know, we tell them that, you know, specifically on video of like, if you, you miss hit a ball, you know, maybe, maybe it wasn't your swing. Maybe it was your timing. Maybe it was a swing decision. Maybe it was you swung at a bad pitch. But just because you, you know, roll over and miss hit a ground ball and you're looking at the video of the swing, like there might not be anything wrong. So I think you always got to be careful in terms of like you want to have all the resources, but you also got to be careful in how you present that to a player. Hitting is such an interesting, you know, dynamic with the technology um, because my background is working with hitters. I'm pro tech. I'm pro, you know, advanced, you know, using as much information at the end of the day as we can get. Right. But 100 percent, you're right in the fact that every time a hitter, you know, I give lessons right now and and we're working through something and kid miss hits a ball and I say good. And they look at me like I have 10 heads and it's like, 
your movements were good. The, the process yeah. of getting to the point of contact was good. You're not always going to flush a barrel, especially when balls are moving and you have to worry about spin and your timing has to be on. But hitters are such an interesting dynamic because they think just because they go 0 for 4 that, that something is wrong. And with the resources that you have at, at a place like Chapel Hill – they have the ability to log into their account and, and go to their shared drive and probably look at every at bat and every swing they've taken since, you know, they step foot on campus. How do you balance the two of like, obviously these things are, you know, again, paralysis by analysis is very much a thing, but I think with hitting specifically, it's, it's one of those things where hitters want to tinker, tinker, tinker. And sometimes it's like, Hey, how can we compete with the swing we have right now? So it's a great question because all, like, so what we always tell our hitters, right. Is, Anytime you every pitch you see, like there's two questions you need to ask yourself first, right? Was I on time, and did I swing at a strike? And if if you said no to either one of those questions, then like conversation's over. Like we don't need to we don't need to worry about your path or worry about your load or worry where your hands are, worried about your stride. Because if you if you weren't on time and you didn't you didn't swing at a strike, like that's your issue. So you know I think that's that's something we still harp on with our guys all the time now too. You know, to your point, Trevor, of like, you know, you, you miss hit a ball and we say good job. And they're like, well, what do you mean? Like, I just, you know, I, I just miss hit that ball. I'm like, well, yeah, you did. But ultimately, like, you got to the point you needed to get to. You just, it, it happens, right? Or, you know, you just got under it and, and flew out. But it doesn't mean that you, you know, totally dropped the back shoulder and, you know, elevated it. You might, you might have done everything right and they just made a good pitch, you know. So, that, that stuff we still talk about all the time with our guys, but you know, the first, first two things we always ask them, you know, coach where's Vicky, our hitting coach is huge on is he, he says, were you on time? And did you swing at a strike? And I think, you know, when you really boil it down and simplify it, like those two things are really tell you a lot um, about, you know, if you, for every pitch you see, like it, it gives you some, some pretty substantial feedback um, before you even get to how was your swing. Yeah. And, and it's, it's funny because timing is such a weird thing. I mean, in, in college specifically, obviously our ramp up isn't like a big leaguer, but I always used to watch guys and you, you watch guys. The, the example for me that comes to mind right away is like Trey Turner historically was a bad spring training player. Right. And then he gets into the regular season because he has a lot of moving parts and it's like, well, he probably just wasn't on time and he understands that, right? Like the failure aspect of like timing is the most important thing. And, and that's what one thing that I used to have a tug of war with guys is like, well, I'm not on time. Well, is it a mechanical thing or do we need more reps? Do we right. need more game like at bats to get you on time or do we need to fix something to put you in a position to be on time? So guys, like I would have guys that have no, no juice that I've worked with in the past go to like no stride, no hand load to be on time more. And it's like, <laughs> well, now you're swinging a pool noodle. Like, you know, like that's, that's the balance. We still have to produce bat speed because timing takes time is what I always like to say. I used to tell guys all the time, like they come to me in February and be like, I just feel like I'm getting beat by below average fastball. It's like timing takes time. Like, right. that's it. Like timing takes time. It's not something you roll out of bed and have. Um, but it's so awesome that those are the first two questions because looking back at it, like it's, that's, that's all that there are things a part of the swing that are important, but at the end of the day, swinging at strikes and being on time is kind of the core of what makes the best hitters the best. Right. Cause I mean, ultimately we talk about it all the time with our guys is like, once you get into a game, like you, you've swung about enough that your body knows the movements, right? So like, you know, if you, if you get in there and you give your body time to do the movements that it's trained to do over and over again, like odds are like you've done everything you can do. So that, that's where the timing piece comes in. And then, you know, you mentioned about timing takes time. Like that, that's something where we tell our guys, like start uncomfortably early. And then if you, if you have the right movement patterns down you can get to a point where you can get to 50, 50 and you can hold that and you can, you know, stay in the ground and all these different things, even if you're early, you're still going to be able to get a good swing off on any count on any pitch. And, you know, so sometimes we'll over-exaggerate that, tell them to really get started early and then force them to stay in the ground, forces them to really use their glutes and, and not, not be on their toes, stay in their heels, and then ultimately be able to, to, to get a good swing off. This will be the last question. We'll let Dan get back in here eventually. He's a pitching guy, so we're nerding out on some offensive stuff. So I know he's got some questions for you. But on the opposite end of that, obviously we both believe that you know timing and, and swinging at good pitches is the core of hitting. But there is a metric side of things, right? And and the way I describe it, and, and actually was, was saying this today, is 
sure, can a hitter produce and be a valuable player without good swing metrics? 100%. There's big leaguers that do it right now and have played their whole life with probably below average swing data. But having a good swing increases your margin for error, right? So what are some of the things that you guys specifically look for on on a swing side that you think at least are the cores to what allow hitters to be successful? Yeah. So, you know, obviously for us at the end of the day, like exit velocity, it is what it is, right? If you hit the ball hard, your odds, data shows that you hit the ball hard, your odds of, of getting on base, um, or, you know, getting a base hit obviously increase. One thing last year we really started to dive into more was exit velo versus hard and soft. Um, and, and our best hitters were guys who had similar exit velos um, versus both. And so I think that was something that we really started diving into last year. And then ultimately, one of the other things, and this isn't quite, um, I don't know if it's quite to your question, but one thing we really track heavily in our program is the amount of swings. But basically what we do is we, you know, I don't think it's uncommon to, to other places, but we basically divide the plate into seven baseballs, right? With one being the inside corner, seven being the outside corner. And we started tracking last year too, the swing percentage, also hard and soft, but the swing percentage um, in balls three, four, five. And then try, trying to see how many swings are you getting off of pitches in the middle of the strike zone, right? Because in, ultimately, like, those are where you should do damage. Um, and if we if we are – because sometimes, you know, we, we talked to guys last fall about this too, right, of like, okay, you didn't have a great fall. Well, where were you swinging? If you were swinging at, you know, you got whatever, you got 50 pitches that were over three, four, five, and you swung at 10 of them, well, you, sw- you had a 20% swing rate, and that, that's not very good. Like, no wonder you didn't get a lot of hits. You didn't swing a ball in the middle of the strike zone. Um, and so that's something that we really have dove into last fall and, and kind of into the spring and think was really kind of really helpful with our hitters to really change their approach, not change, but maybe mature their approach into, like, where are you swinging? What are you swinging at? And ultimately, like, if you're getting a swing off on a ball in the strike zone in the middle of the plate, then, like, you, you maybe you didn't hit it, but you can't control the result, right? You got a good swing off like a, on a good pitch. Like that's, that's important. So I think things like that are something are things that we really kind of look at, but, but ultimately kind of to your point, like not every hitter is going to have the same metrics. We also want to try to make sure that, you know, our three hole hitter and our nine hole hitter aren't trying to both elevate the ball at a hundred off the bat and, you know, at, at 28 degrees, right? Because our nine hole hitter, he, first off, he's not going to hit the ball 100 miles an hour. And if he hits the ball at 30 or plus degrees off the bat, then it's going to be an out. At the same token, if, if you know, if Hunter Stokely, our, our left-handed hitting, you know, middle of the order first baseman, if he's hitting the ball at routinely, you know, on the ground, 10, 11, 12, you know, degrees, like those also for him are outs. So being able to kind of tailor our approach to the type of hitter to what kind of result, what kind of batted ball result they should see, um, you know, I think also kind of goes back to that approach we were talking about. Hopefully I can get this question out without it. If it doesn't make sense, just tell me. Um, but, you know, when you talk about, you know, the seven locations across the plate, that kind of piques my interest too. So is that something where you guys are, hey, there's a, we feel like if guys are in the zone long, then for a longer point of time they can get to all seven of those zones and that's what we're going to try and train or is it more of like you were saying it's a swing decision thing this is where your swing plays to i want like we want to hunt pitches in one two three or like you said three four five in the middle of the plate or even hey your swing really plays you know maybe it's four through seven is that something you do are you guys trying to think of like okay if we can get in the zone and be in the zone for a long amount of time which i know is what a lot of people are trying to get guys to do um and what you know teams want to see where you're trying to get them to be able to get to all seven of those and get barrel to all seven of those locations. Yeah. I mean, great question. So for us, like we're trying to have every one of our hitters, you know, in, you know, zero strike or one strike counts are hunting three, four, five. We do change it a little bit. When a guy gets to two strikes, we kind of, we, we shift it one ball. So it's four, five, six. We know at our level that guys rarely will come in. You know, they don't want to pitch in the college level. So that's why we, we shifted to be one ball out. You get the two strikes, you're more likely to pitch away, right? We, you know, it, it's difficult to cover all seven. And, and ultimately, so we very rarely, if ever, tell our guys that, like, we want you to hunt all seven. Because ultimately, like, you got to give pitchers credit at some point. Like, some guys can make that pitch and they can hit that seven on the lower, you know, low outside corner. And if he dots you up and he dots you up, like you tip your cap and, and you know, the, but the odds of that happening 
three pitches in a row or three out of basically three out of six or three out of seven pitches, you know, aren't very likely. So if we're always hunting for those three, four, five, odds are in our favor that one of those three or if, you know, you work up, you know, up to seven pitches, one of those seven will be in that zone. And ultimately it's up to the hitter to, to get a swing off. And if you get a swing off of that pitch, then you've kind of done your job. So do you guys go back and track this after, or do you guys have like, I'll tell you, so we made, this is, this is very D3 and, and Alex could, could attest to this. We, t- I took, I was sitting at home during winter break. I took a drill and put holes through a piece of wood and then drilled baseballs too. And to be honest with you, again, so D3, we did 10 balls because you have to be able to cover two balls off at our level. It's just reality. It was a strike, um, and it was that's how, you know, if a pitcher can take advantage of it. And that was kind of what we communicated. And then when we, we would put those out, and when we were hitting off machines, when we were hitting off of uh, – or when we were standing in on pens, we tracked and would chart how far off guys were in terms of, like, we would have them say fastball six. And you'd be like, no, that was a fastball four. Like, <laughs> we're way off or just vice versa. So that was kind of how we did it. Again, we, we were doing paper tracking and things like that. How do you guys go about doing something similar with what you're talking about? Yeah, so I think that's going back to your technology questions earlier. That We, we do a lot of that with some of the TrackMan data um, in terms of how, how our analytics guys are able to take the TrackMan data and, and you know, put it into visualizations. Um, so we have a, you know, like a, a database uh, that we can reference of like, here's, you know, here's all Vance Honeycutt's pitches that he saw and here's the zones that they were in and here's how many swings he got off on these different zones. Um, but even your, your point about, you know, something we do all the time during BP, um, or especially in the cages is I'll have someone feed the machine and me or coach was big or someone will be back behind the plate and a guy will swing and I'll say, Hey, where was that ball? And our guys are conditioned enough now to be like, Oh, I, I thought that was a, I thought that was a four. Like, well, dude, actually that was a two, like, you know, that's a, that's a borderline pitch or, you know, you, you swing at a ball off the play. Where, where'd you have that? I, I thought it was a six. Well, actually that was like a, like a 10, if that was a thing for us. So like sometimes that helps kind of get that awareness in terms of what, what guys think they're swinging at, what they're actually swinging at. And then we can always refer back to, like I said, to that, to, you know, the data, the track man, like we mentioned earlier, of really providing a, providing the why to what, what they were doing, right. To quantify what we see with our eyes. So um, I think things like that, try to build that philosophy into our guys' heads is, is so beneficial. So have you found a way to, to help guys that might be two balls off? Um, is there any, like, is it a thought process? Is it vision training? And what are, what have kind of been the steps for guys that are consistently off? Is it backing them off the plate, moving them closer? How do you go about that? Yeah. Well, if, if a guy's consistently swinging at 10 and 11 ball, then we might go get life check, but no, I mean, we, we talk, we talk often about too, when we're making an approach for a guy is box adjustments, right? So moving up, moving back, moving on, or moving, moving off. And so, you know, there's situations like that where, if, if a pitcher is really showing us that he can, you know, he can routinely pitch in, right? And so now maybe we need to adjust our approach. Instead of hunting three, four, five, maybe we're hunting two or three, four. Well, how are we going to do that? Okay, well, we'll make a box adjustment. Um, you know, same vice versa. If, if he's, you know, dotting us away, the umpire's given ball nine and ten today. Okay, well, hey, now we need to get on on the plate. And if once you do that, though, you got to be able to, you know, we always say you got to have the courage to they throw you a one and you're on the plate. Well, dude, you got to lay off of it. Cause, cause even if you do make contact, you're not going to, uh, you're not, you're not going to make good contact. So that all kind of plays into our approach. And that's something that, you know, coach words, Vicky really prides himself on is making sure that our guys are prepared for what they're going to see and our approach to that and making sure that when we do, you know, whether it's moving up, moving back on or off, that our guys are really bought into what we're preaching for that guy or that, that, you know, that opposing pitcher, because ultimately, you know, you, you got to be able to, if, if your approach is today, we're going four, five, six, because this guy can only pitch away. If he dots you in, then, you know, it kind of is what it is. Let's, uh, you know, a lot of this conversation has kind of been around approach a little bit. And, you know, approach is something that is always fascinating to me because, you know, hitting is so hard. And I think, you you know, without an approach and you hear every coach say it, like you have to have an approach, you have to have an approach, but it's really hard to quantify what that approach is. How do you guys, you know, a teach and train approach. And also how do you, you know, build what that approach should be? Meaning, you know, like you were just saying, Hey, we're hunting here today. Well, what makes that be 
what we're doing in that day? And then how do you kind of create that buy-in from guys? Yeah, good question. So, you know, kind of what we what we try to do ultimately is obviously you got to prepare your guys for, for all different types of, of, you know, arms, right? Because ultimately your approach that day is going to be dictated off, a lot of off what that opposing pitcher is going to try to do to you. So, you know, I think first and foremost, it, it kind of starts with how you prepare your guys, you know, in the fall, early preseason of showing them different, showing them high spin guys, showing them kind of seeing and slider guys, showing them all different types of arms that they're going to see. And then through that process, through that skill work or whatever it is, like when we see this guy, this is our approach. When we see this type of guy, here's what we're going to do. When the guy wants to ride up in the zone, we got to get on top. Like all those type of things, those type of cues, you know, we kind of use, you know, the fall to figure out individually for each player, like what cue helps them figure out that approach. So that when we do get into a game in season and guys getting his doors blown off because pitchers pitching up in the zone and, what helps it back in the fall to get on top of the baseball? Is it, is it thinking about chopping downs or thinking about, you know, hit, hit, you know, hitting a ground ball, is it, you know, split grip, whatever it is, those type of things we can always try to, we try to figure out throughout the fall, what, what kind of cues help guys to, to hone in on that so that we can refer back to it. But, um, you know, I think ultimately kind of to your, to your question, Dan, like I think ultimately you're, you're going to dictate it based off the pitcher first and foremost, you just have to hope you prepared your guys enough to know that when you see this type, how are we going to, what's our approach going to be? Yeah. And, and you brought up the high spin fastballs up in the zone. Is, is that something that, um, I mean, it's, it's always been something that I remember actually the, the way I kind of came across believing about, you know, path and how to, how it impacts pitch movement and matching planes and, and things like that was actually feeding the, the hack attack. Um, and we had guys that, weren't the most talented um but one was flat and just like clobbered the pitching machine like it was throwing like you know perfectly backspun fastballs at the mid mid waist and just barrel 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 and i was like wow that's kind of weird but noticed that he was flat and then kid would come in again kind of same skill level and and maybe even a little better than the kid that was clobbering it was struggle like just just unbelievable everything off the top of the turtle everything swing and miss swing and miss swing and miss and it's not like we were pumping it at like you know 89 and 91 it was like you know stock fastball with a with a little bit of ride how has that process changed the thought process of being able to match pitch data with approach and build that into the game plan and communicate that with guys because some guys might not you know some guys understand it better than others but but how has that balance of kind of combining it it all and intertwining it all in in the dugout before guys are are stepping into that box to compete yeah you know another good question i I think for us ultimately it kind of comes down to you know coach works bicky and i and and all of our coaches we've developed the game plan we know know what they're going to be but ultimately we got to put our guys in positions to to succeed so whether it's through video showing them what a guy is going to do to them we have a pitching machine now where we can type in tracking data and and we can show them here's here's what it looks like i ultimately kind of got to hope that you can refer back to your training and that they that they've seen it enough in practice that when they do continually make the same mistake over and over again in a game you know, hopefully they can make a pitch to pitch adjustment. You know, that's, that's obviously hard to do. Um, but, you know, being able to have the awareness of, you know, when I'm missing the cage off this high spin fastball, here's what I do, you know, here's what I do to fix it. You kind of got to hope that, you know, when you get into the game, guys can, can kind of make that adjustment. You know, we, we always say, you know, at bat to at bat, in a perfect world, it's pitch to pitch, right? You want them, if I miss, miss a ball here, cause I'm under it, cause a high spin, he comes back to me. I make the adjustment and go from there. So, you know, I think that's, it's something we're, we're always trying to, trying to figure out. I think it's individualized based on the individual player and kind of what makes them go. Um, but, you know, I think it's something that you, you can never, you can never train enough of because I think routinely we're seeing so many more guys now that are, that are pitching, you know, with those high spins um, and all that stuff. I think it's something that guys see all the time. I mean, I think back to last, last spring and how many, how many guys we faced, where it was like, oh well, here's another high ride guy with, you know, he he's he's got some, you know, twenty inches of, of you know induced vertical, you know, what what's our approach going to be? So I think it's something that you're going to continually see, and I think with the way baseball is going, it seems like it's going to continue to only increase. So this this will be a quick one. I feel like this has been my thought. Have you guys thought about 
deciding pinch hitters or lineup changes based off of pitch profiles, or is that is that a little bit a little bit more nitty gritty than we've gotten yet? No, we we definitely we'll go into a game or go into a series, and we'll we'll know the you know this guy's a great matchup for this type of pitcher, and this guy's a great matchup for this other type of pitcher, and, and knowing that that you know, knowing how their their path or how their approach kind of what their individual approach is, how it will play with based on what we're, what we're facing. So yeah, hundred percent. You know, I, it's so interesting because you just mentioned that we, you think that it's just going to continue to trend towards that in the high spin, but at some point, right? Like we're not going to be, guys aren't going to be spinning 35, you know, IVB fastballs. I, I don't right. think, I mean, especially now that, you know, we're checking spider for spider tack and stuff, right? Like at some point, so what's, what do you guys see? I don't know if you've had any discussions or the you know the pitching staff has had any discussions about, okay, so what's next? Because Trevor and I, Trev and I have had this conversation about trying to, you know, multi-plane breaking fastballs, right? So, you know, and I, I think it was when Colton was on, we even kind of talked about if you can – I always was trying – I spent a whole summer trying to get a kid to, to be able to – he had a high-ride fastball. I was trying to get him to cut it too because now we're getting it up and, you know, two boxes or one or two boxes left. Where do you kind of see that next step going? Because we can't just keep backspinning baseballs up and right. up and up, right? Yeah, I mean, I think that's it's an interesting question. There's something I, I think about actually one of our former players, um, Cooper Criswell, who's with the Rays. And we were talking with him recently. And when he was here, you know, Carolina, um, you know, he had, he had a good fastball, was 90, 92. But his go-to pitch was a slider. And so for him, like, you know, he got away with those two pitches. Well, when he got to when he got to pro ball, they introduced a cutter to him, and it's kind of interesting because it, you you think they're kind of the same pitch. Well, no, the Rays, for example, wanted him to throw his fastball, throw his cutter, and then he also has a slider that played out of the same tunnel, played out of the same you know, same type of pitch. One just you know had probably ten inches more horizontal than 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 the other. So I think stuff like that will probably be kind of the next you know kind of the next step in, in pitching development. Um, you know, I think your your point with multi-plane fastballs is also interesting too. Whether you're you can ride it up in the zone, you can cut it, can you also sink it? You know, we have a guy on our staff who we call him the Iron Mike because I think he has literally 15 different pitches. But that's that's something that's something he can do. Like he has a cutter, he has a slider, he has a curveball, then he also has like a pretty dang good sinker. Um, I think he also throws a splitter actually. Like he literally throws everything. But you know, he's highly effective because of your point right there. He's able. You know, based on a hitter, what kind of path a hitter has, or something like that, he can then dictate: okay, Am I going to sink this out in his hands? Am I going to ride it? Am I going to try to you know just spin him away? Um, so I, I think that's I mean it's an interesting concept. I'm sure that that you know it makes sense that that would kind of be the next kind of frontier in pitching development. That's awesome. Yeah, that, that's my favorite is, is talking about these. So if there's one one on the pitching side, right, Every I feel like every program kind of has like their, their thing that they're able to develop. What's kind of North Carolina's pitch to, to pitchers is like obviously Wake Forest has been synonymous with adding velocity over the last couple of years, being able to do that. What would you say like you guys do best with with pitchers specifically? Yeah, you know, one thing that we kind of we really hang our hat on is we we're never going to cookie cutter a development for a, a, any player, but specifically pitchers, right? We're never going to try to to coach every pitcher the exact same. We're, we're not teaching the same mechanics. We're not, you know, we're not trying to you know overhaul mechanics to fit a cookie cutter approach, right? So the biggest thing for us always is you know we we feel strongly in our strength and develop our strength and conditioning program. We feel strongly in our our medical. Um, team that like first and foremost like most importantly like you're going to be healthy you're going to be on the field and you're, you're going to be you're going to be able to pitch a long time um in, in terms of development like a, a lot of that i think sometimes we give us coaches like too much credit like you know it, at the end of the day like we can be there we, we can guide the horse to water we can't make him drink so ultimately like that that's where us as coaches have to have the kind of the humility to look back and be like hey you know we we're going to do all the research. We're going to be as prepared as we can be to help you be the best player you can be. But ultimately, like some of the onus has to go on the player. Um, and we want guys that are, that, that want to get better. We want guys that come into our program that aren't, that, you know, are, you know, are, are really good players when they come in. We want them to leave better. We want them to leave healthy. Um, but, but ultimately, like, I think there's, there's so many different things that kind of play into it. I, I don't want to say we necessarily have a, a go-to. We, we make everyone throw harder. Because that doesn't—that's that, not what everyone needs. 
like some guys don't need to throw 98 to be effective. Some guys can can pitch and, and pitch for a long time, you know, throwing because they can sink it on a guy's hands and they can spin them away and they don't need 98. So I don't know if we necessarily say that we're a velo school or whatever, because I think ultimately our, our pitch is we want to make you be the best version of you. And we're, we're not going to cookie cutter what that looks like. That's awesome, and, and that's that's pitching development. And that's that's ultimately player development. Well, Carter, we got a couple more questions for you. This hour has absolutely flown by. It's it's been so much fun, and, and you've provided us and our listeners with so much information. So, my question is, it's about realignment, right? And it's so funny because we talk about it. Um, we talked about it with Colton, not thinking that it was going to expand as much as it did. Um, obviously, the fall of the Pac-12, and, and obviously this was all a football decision, is, is now the ACC is going to have to travel out west for, for conference series at the end of the day, and Stanford and Cal joining the ACC. What's kind of the, the conversation point of, like, at least what you've heard of, like, how is this going to completely change, you know, what it's going to be? Is it going to be something where you guys meet up in Dallas and and play a three-game set? Is it how, – how's that going to impact ACC baseball? Yeah, I mean, it's a, a lot of it we, we don't even know. You know, I'll say first and foremost, when you get to add – I mean, Stanford's been the College World Series four years in a row. So you add a school like that to the ACC, like, I think I, I think that's awesome. You know, you add, you know, Stanford, Cal, both the the West, the players they have in the West Coast, the, the type of talent that's in the state of California. Like, that's exciting for, for our conference. Um, so in terms of what it looks like specifically, I, I don't know. I mean, there's been a bunch of different ideas thrown around of this, that or the other. You know, it's it's it's, I guess, ironic, maybe. But they brought up the idea of playing in, in Dallas, you know, but SMU doesn't have a baseball team. So we're going to go play the Rangers Park. I don't know, but I think I think ultimately, like ultimately for us, like specifically baseball wise, if you add Stanford, who who you know we all know what they've done. Cal, I know it's been up and down, but they, they've had some good teams and they've had some really good players. I mean, Andrew Vaughn, you know, was a guy that was one of the first USA teams I was a part of and, and still really close with, and, and he was a Cal a Cal guy. So you know, I, I think it, it's it's where we are in college sports today. Um, it's not really surprising because that's that's the landscape we're living in but you know i think it'll be i think it'll be a new opportunity it's so fascinating because it, it again like i said it, it felt like college athletics were the same for a lot of a lot of years and for a long time and then it just feels like it's just been this rapid whirlwind of changes and i'm excited to see where it goes and um like you said adding those two teams to acc although it seems weird and we might have to change the name from atlantic coast to all coast but uh <laughs> It's, it's definitely going to be uh, exciting. My last question is just a, a fun one for me. What's your favorite ACC road trip? Oh, gosh. Um, okay, good question. So I'm, I don't just have one. So I'll, Perfect. My, my, so, oh, gosh. All right. <laughs> Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh's a good road trip because it's a really cool city. We stay in the hotel. It's right across the street from PNC Park. One of my favorite stories to always tell at Pittsburgh. So when I was a student, my senior year, we went up there in April and the Yankees were in town that weekend. And so it was still April in Pittsburgh. So we played, you know, like three o'clock games on Friday, on Friday and Saturday. And so after the game on Friday, you know, we walk over across the Roberto Clemente bridge, you know, walking down, we're going to go try to watch the game and we're wearing like a Carolina t-shirt or something. Well, the guy security guy alongside like the first, the third base line, was apparently a huge Carolina fan. And he saw us and he goes, Oh, you guys in town for, for baseball? And we're like, Yeah, you know, we're, you know, UNC, whatever. And he goes, No, I, I know why you're here. You guys want to come watch Pirates? Come on in. And he like opened up this like side door of PNC Park and like let it, he goes, All right, just walk straight, take a right, go like whatever, right? Go up the stairs, go down, and then find a seat. So let us in. So we, we got there like the eighth inning. I remember we watched Chapman, you know, came in and closed. This was when he was full with the Yankees. And then I think like Judge or someone hit a bomb, right? So we come back the next day and, you know, we have a couple more guys with us now. And it, it, same guy, same door, same conversation. <laughs> let us right in. So that's always cool about Pittsburgh. Um, you know, I think NC State's fun to go to because of the rivalry. Miami's always fun to go to because, you know, that place seven o'clock on a Friday night, that places is, is jumping pretty good um so we we have some solid solid places in, in the conference so um but th- those are kind of some of the highlights you didn't mention That's the awesome. school up the street i respect that <laughs> <laughs> i respect that rivalry 
That's awesome. Dan, any any last questions before we uh, let Carter get out of here? No, this was awesome, man. Like Trev said, this hour flew. I really appreciate you taking the time. Awesome, guys. Well, I really appreciate the time, too, and uh, looking forward to, to talking baseball again with you guys, and, and hopefully we'll uh, hope see you guys at Bosch Stadium because of Madeira. For sure. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely be up there and, and, and check some things out, and, and we'll definitely stay in touch. We'll, we'll get you back on the pod here as we get closer to the season. It's always nice to have to have friends across college baseball as, as we get on here and build relationships. That's, our, that's really our favorite part is we get to sit here and, and nerd out for an hour with really smart people, and, and it's nothing we'd rather do on our, on our Tuesday evening than, than do this. So we appreciate you taking the time to, to talk to us and, and definitely have an open invitation to come back on whenever and we'll all be cheering on Tar Heels this year no doubt awesome thank you guys so much have a great night of course and thank you to our listeners as that will conclude our episode for tonight make sure you're subscribing to the podcast on all podcast platforms including Apple Pods Spotify and anywhere you find your podcast we post episodes every week always hitting your feed at 7am sharp don't forget to follow us on Twitter at BacksideGB Instagram at BacksideGroundBalls and TikTok at BacksideGroundBall and most importantly make sure you're sharing with five friends and we'll see you next time on the Backside Ground Balls podcast. Great news. Major League Baseball is back. The college baseball season continues to electrify. And with the help of our friends over at SeatGeek, we can get you out to whatever game you want to see. All you need to do is head over to SeatGeek, find your game you want to go to, and enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL to get $20 off your first purchase. Maybe you want to go see some NBA or NHL playoffs. I don't know. Maybe you want to go to a concert with the weather warming up throughout the country. No matter what event you're looking to go to, our friends at SeatGeek can hook you up with the best deals. Great seats at an affordable price. You can't beat it. Make sure to enter promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL for $20 off. That's SeatGeek.com, promo code BACKSIDEGROUNDBALL.